I'd like to start with a reading from Isaiah, Isaiah 55.1. Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. Uh, so living as moderns in Southern California, when we, we tend to think of food in mostly material terms, kind of as fuel. So when we hear a phrase like, you are what you eat, we think of it as saying, eat locally sourced organic food and maximize your health by what you eat. But that's not what the author of that phrase intended. His goal was to reason away Christianity. And the phrase's original meaning, as conceived by its author, 19th century German philosopher Ludwig Feuerbach, meant essentially, Man is just material stuff who consumes other material stuff, then dies and becomes material stuff that is food for other material stuff. (laughs) Pretty bleak view of of existence. There's nothing more. In essence, life is meaningless and strictly material. In response, the church has unfortunately mostly left that assumption unchallenged in a way and said something like, that's fine since the material doesn't really matter. We're really spiritual beings so we can ignore or even downgrade the material and focus on the holy other world of the spiritual. This is a sort of form of modern Gnosticism, and it's proven as great a mistake as the ancient Greek version against which the Apostle Paul fought in so many of his epistles. But recovering a balanced view of humankind's physical spiritual unity is not an easy task. We seem to prefer dualisms that pit imminent against transcendent, secular against holy, material against spiritual. So how do we begin to find our way back to a modern duality that unites that Christ and the apostles proclaimed? A book by Greek Orthodox theologian Alexander Schmemann has been an eye-opening help to me in this task. And in his words, the purpose of his book, For the Life of the World, is to remind readers that in Christ, life in all its totality was returned to man given again as sacrament and communion, made Eucharist. His first chapter is about how we see that in our relationship to food, and I'll be mostly reading that powerful first chapter with some paraphrasing and comments. Here's what he wrote. Man is what he eats. With that statement, the German materialist Feuerbach thought he had put an end to all idealism about the human nature. In fact, however, he was expressing without knowing it the most religious idea of man, Long before Feuerbach, the same definition of man was given by the Bible. In the biblical story of creation, man is presented, first of all, as a hungry being, and the whole world is his food. Second, only to the direction to propagate and have dominion over the earth, according to the author of the first chapter of Genesis, is God's instruction to men to eat of the earth. Genesis 1.29 Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed and every tree which is the fruit of a tree-yielding seed. To it shall be, to you it shall be for meat. Man must eat in order to live. He must take the world into his body and transform it into himself, into flesh and blood. He is indeed that which he eats, and the whole world in that garden setting is presented as one all-embracing banquet, a table for man. And this image of the banquet remains throughout the whole Bible, the central image of life. It is the image of life at its creation, and also the image of life at its end and fulfillment. We see in Luke 22.30, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. 
We're considering this seemingly unspiritual theme of food removed from the great religious issues of our time because the very purpose of this discussion is to answer, if possible, the question of what do we speak, what life do we preach, proclaim, and announce when as Christians we confess that Christ died for the life of the world? What life is both motivation and the beginning and goal of Christian mission? The existing answers follow two general patterns. There are those among us for whom life when discussed in religious terms, means religious life. And this religious life is a world in itself, existing apart from the secular world and its life. It is the world of spirituality. In our days, it seems to gain more and more popularity. Amazon's spiritual category, for example, is filled with anthologies of mystical writings. Lost and confused in the noise, the rush, and the frustrations of life, Manus easily accepts the invitation to enter into the inner sanctuary of his soul and discover there another life, to enjoy a spiritual banquet, amply supplied with spiritual food. This spiritual food will help him to restore his peace, mind, and endure the other, the secular, life, to accept its tribulations, to lead a wholesome and more dedicated life, to keep smiling in a deep religious way. And thus, it might seem that Christian mission consists here in converting people to this spiritual life, making them religious. Then religious life makes the secular one, if if that is the goal. It makes the secular life, the life of eating and drinking, irrelevant. Deprived of any real meaning, save that of being an exercise in piety and patience, or maybe even gluttony. And the more spiritual is the religious banquet, the more secular material and split apart becomes every other element that makes up our days. But the spiritualists are counterbalanced by the activists. From the point of view, from this point of view, Christianity has simply lost the world, and the world must be recovered. The Christian mission, therefore, is exclusively to catch up with a life that has gone astray, and the whole of our concern moves to the imminent, and what we need to do to fix the situation in which we find ourselves to make things more bearable, to make things more fair. And yet, despite whatever those two approaches might contribute, the basic question still remains unanswered. What is the life that we must regain for Christ and make Christian? What is, in other words, the ultimate end of all this doing and action? One eats and drinks. One fights for freedom and justice in order to be alive, to have the fullness of life. But what is it? What is the life of life itself? When all the practical goals have been achieved, we hope that there must come perfect joy, but about what? Until we can understand the bridge between the physical and the spiritual, the real life of the world for which God, for which we are told God gave his only begotten son, remains hopelessly beyond our religious grasp. Man is what he eats, but what does he eat and why? These questions seem naive and irrelevant to philosophers like Feuerbach, but they also seemed irrelevant at times to his religious opponents. To them, as to him, eating was a material function, and the only important question was whether, in addition to eating, man possessed a spiritual superstructure over that uh, physical structure. Religion said yes, Feuerbach said no, but both answers were given within the same fundamental opposition of spiritual to material. Spiritual versus material. Sacred versus profane. Supernatural versus natural. Such were the centuries, such for centuries were the only accepted, the only understandable categories of religious thought and experience. In contrast, the Bible from Genesis 1 through the Gospels begins with man as a hungry being, with the man who is at, who is that which he eats. 
In the Bible, the food that man eats, the world of which he must partake in order to live, is given to him by God. All that exists is God's gift to man, and all that exists, and it all exists to make God known to man, to make man's life communion with God. It is divine love made food, made life for man. I want to read that again since it's the key to this entire essay. All that exists exists to make God known to man, to make man's life communion with God. It is divine love made food, made life for man. God blesses everything he creates. And in biblical language, that means he makes all creation the sign and means of his presence. Wisdom, love, and revelation. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Man is a hungry being, but he is hungry for God. Behind all the hunger of our life is God. All desire is finally desire for God. To be sure, man is not the only hungry being. Everything that exists lives by eating. The whole creation depends on food, but the unique position of man in the universe is that man alone is to bless God for the food and the life he receives from him. He alone is to respond to God's blessing with his own blessing. The significant fact about the life in the garden is that man was to name things. As soon as the animals were created, God brought them to Adam to see what he would call them, and whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was its name. Now in the Bible, a name is infinitely more than the means to distinguish one thing from another. It reveals the very essence of a thing, or rather, its essence as God's gift. To name a thing is to manifest the meaning and value God gave it, to know it as coming from God, and to know its place and function within the cosmos created by God. To name a thing, in other words, is to bless God for it and in it. And in the Bible, to bless God is not a religious act, but the very way of life. God blessed the world, blessed man, and blessed the seventh day, that is time. And this means that he filled all that exists with his love and goodness, made all of this stuff very good. So the only natural and not supernatural reaction of man to whom God gave this blessed and sanctified world is to bless God in return, to thank him, to see the world as God sees it, and in this act of gratitude and adoration, to know, name, and possess the world. I want to stress that last sentence again. We're not given dominion as a form of power over creation. We are given dominion so that we may bless God in gratitude and adoration through creation. That is the true nature of our dominion. All rational, spiritual, and other qualities of man, distinguishing him from other creatures, have their focus and ultimate fulfillment in this category to bless God. To know, so to speak, the meaning of the thirst and hunger that constitutes his life. Homo sapiens. Yes, but first of all, homo adorans. The first, the basic definition of man is that he is the priest. He stands in the center of the world and unifies it in his act of blessing God, of both receiving the world from God and offering it to God. It is an unbroken continuum of receiving and giving, modeled after God's own Trinitarian relationship. And by filling the world with this Eucharist, man transforms his life, the one that he receives from the world, into life in God, into communion with God. The world was created as the matter, the material of one all-embracing Eucharist, and man was created as the priest of this cosmic sacrament. 
Men understand all this instinctively, if not rationally. Even centuries of secularism have failed to transform eating into something strictly utilitarian. Food is still treated with reverence, and a meal is still a rite, sort of maybe the last natural sacrament of family and friendship, of life that is more than just eating and drinking. To eat is still something more than to maintain bodily functions. We love our pets, but watch them eat if you want to see a wholly non-sacramental way of eating, of consuming food. Even at our most rushed, we recognize that something more than refueling is going on. People may not understand what that something more is, but they nonetheless desire to celebrate it, and they are still hungry and thirsty for sacramental life. It's not accidental, therefore, that the biblical story of the fall is centered again on food. Man ate the forbidden fruit, the fruit of that one tree that, whatever else it may signify, was unlike every other fruit in the garden. That fruit was not offered as a gift to man, not given, not blessed by God. It was food whose eating was condemned to be communion with itself, alone, and not with God. It is the image of the world loved for itself, and eating it is the image of life understood as an end in itself. Man has loved the world, but as an end in itself, and not as a gift from God. Man has done this so consistently that it has become it has become something that is in the air. It seems natural for man to experience the world as opaque and not shot through with the presence of God. It seems natural not to live a life of thanksgiving for God's gift of the world. It seems natural not to be Eucharistic. The world is a fallen world because it has fallen away from the awareness that God is all in all. The accumulation of this disregard for God is the original sin that blights the world, And even the religions of this fallen world cannot heal or redeem it, for they have accepted the reduction of God to an area called spiritual and to the world as profane. They have accepted the all-embracing secularism which attempts to steal the world away from God. But in truth, the natural dependence of man upon the world was intended to be transformed continually into communion with God, in whom is all life. Man was to be the priest, offering the world to God, and in this offering he was to receive the gift of life. But in the fallen world, man does not have the priestly power to do this. His dependence on the world becomes a closed circuit, and his love is deviated from its true direction. We still love, we are still hungry. We know that we are dependent on that which is beyond us, but our love and dependence refer only to the world in itself. Man forgets that the world, its air, its food, cannot by themselves bring true and everlasting life. They could only do this as they are received and accepted for God's sake in God and as bearers of the divine gift of life. By themselves they can produce only the appearance of life. When we see the, when we see the world as an end in itself, everything loses its true value because only in God is found the meaning or value of everything. And the world is meaningful only when it is the sacrament of God's presence. Things treated merely as things in themselves destroy themselves because only in God do they have actual life. The world of nature cut off from the source of life is a dying world. For one who thinks that food in itself is the source of life, eating is communion with a dying world. It is communion with death. Food itself is dead. It It is life that has died and must be kept in refrigerators to slow its spoiling. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
The life man chose in the garden was only the appearance of life. God showed him that he himself had decided to eat bread in a way that would simply return him to the ground from which both he and the bread had been taken. For dust thou art, and into dust thou shalt return. Man lost his Eucharistic life. He lost the life of life itself, the power to transform food into life. He ceased to be the priest of the world and became its slave. To return to our first statement, you are what you eat, we can see that in a sense Feuerbach was right, but not for the reasons he believed. It's not that there's nothing more than the material, but rather that we have rejected the true life that makes all things more than material. We have separated what can only find its true meaning by being joined together as God originally intended. In the story of the garden, this took place at night, and when Adam left the garden, where life was to have been Eucharistic, an offering of the world and thanksgiving to God, he led the world, the whole world, as it were, into darkness. There's a sense in which the original sin is not primarily that man has disobeyed God. The sin is that he has ceased to be hungry for God, ceased to see his whole life depending on the world as a sacrament of communion with God. The sin was not that man neglected his religious duties. The sin was that he thought of God in terms of religion at all. That is, conceiving God in opposition to life. The real fall of man is his non-Eucharistic life in a non-Eucharistic world. It's not just that man preferred the world to God or merely distorted the balance between the spiritual and material, but that man, in fact, made the world material, something apart from God which man could then interpret or remake according to his own desires, whereas he was actually to have transformed the world into life in God, filled with meaning and spirit. In one sense, God gave creation as a gift, so it was our choice, so to speak, but our choice led to separation. Only the choice to have given the world back and enjoyed it as communion could have led to life in fullness. But it is the Christian gospel that God did not leave man in his exile in the predicament of confused longing. He had created man after his own heart and for himself, and man has struggled in his freedom to find the answer to the mysterious hunger within. In this, sea, in this scene of radical unfulfillment, God acted decisively. Into the darkness where man was groping towards paradise, he sent light. He did so not merely as a rescue operation to recover lost man. It was rather for the completing of what God had undertaken from the very beginning. God acted so that man might understand who he really was and where his hunger had really been driving him. The light God sent was his son, the same light that had been shining unextinguished in the world's darkness all along seen now in full brightness. Before Christ came, God had promised him to man. He had done so in a major fashion, speaking through the prophets of Israel, but also in those many other ways in which he communicates with man. As Christians, we believe that he, who is the truth about both God and man, gives foretastes of his incarnation in all more fragmentary truths. Simone Weil, for example, has said that though a person may run as fast as he can away from Christ, if it is towards the truth, he runs, in fact, straight into the arms of Christ. Christianity is, in a profound sense, the end of all religion and the beginning of life. In the Gospel story of the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus made this clear. Quoting from John 4.19, Sir, the woman said to him, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. 
Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour comes when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. But the hour comes now and is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such to worship him. She asked him a question originally about sustenance, then about cult or religion. In reply, Jesus changed the whole perspective of the matter. Religion is needed where there is a wall of separation between God and man. But Christ, who is both God and man, has broken down the wall. He, is, he has inaugurated a new life, not a new religion. It was this freedom of the early church from religion, in the usual traditional sense, that led the pagans to accuse Christians of atheism. There was no need for temples built of stone. Christ's body, the church itself, the new people gathered in him was the only real temple. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. John 2. The church itself was the new and heavenly Jerusalem. The fact that Christ comes in his present was far more significant than the places where he had been. The historical reality of Christ was, of course, the undisputed ground of the early Christians' faith. Yet they did not so much remember him as know he was with them. And in him was the end of all religion, because he himself is the answer to all religion to all human hunger for God, because in him the life that was lost by man and which could only be symbolized, signified, asked for in religion was restored to man. Though we no longer have need of a physical temple as the single place to commune with God, we have not abandoned the physical. God has redeemed it. And through Christ, who is God and man perfectly united, both the physical and the spiritual, as one. In in our physical act of communion, of taking creation into our bodies, we are made our participant in God's reuniting of that which was torn apart. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for this time we can meet together, for the safety that you've given us, for the blessings that we have, the freedom to worship in this country. We thank you that you have loved us and redeemed us and have given us both a physical and a spiritual life. Help us to see the ways in which you are uniting those two things. Help us to love you in all that we do, spiritually, physically, all as one, to see you as the source of all life and all truth. We ask in Jesus' name.